Welcome back to the Over the Counter Podcast. I'm Mark Eastcheck. And I'm Andrew Whaley. So, Andrew, it has been a long time since we sat down and did this. Well, okay, maybe not, not that long, right? We, it's been a long time since, since we did it here in Colorado. Right, right. We, the last one we did was at uh, Cultivate Coffee and Tap House, and I jacked up the tech, and we had to put out the backup on your phone. Yes, I did, kind of, I did apologize for that at the very beginning of the track, so hopefully your ears weren't too offended, dear listener. Uh, but here we are with a very enhanced technological setup in a hermetically sealed studio uh, where there will be no interference or audio problems of any kind. Well, I don't know if I could promise no audio problems of any kind. Is that thing on batteries? No, it's plugged in. Okay, well, that's good. Should I, be, should I have my phone out on the table, too, as a backup recording? No, like we're good. We're just going to run without a net here. Oh, so wow. it's funny. I say, um, I feel like we're taking a great risk over, over on my radio show. Whenever I'm recording in here, I say, I am in a bunker <laughs> hidden underneath the center of the new evangelization nestled somewhere in the Rockies. Not unlike NORAD. <laughs> I, I feel like you would have to be one floor lower. Well, that actually, usually I say that when I'm down in the, the, yeah. the, 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 was this the staging area for father Riley now. Used to be the recording area. The, this is the, the augmented recording area. Right now we're in uh, the, the first basement, but he, yeah, sometimes you're in the sub basement. Yeah, there's a, two basements here. There's B1, B2, and we are in the booth. They have different levels of classification and security. Right. I mean, I have clearance to go all the way to B2. I don't know about you, but. Oh, you don't know about B3? I built B3, I designed B3. <laughs> I thought that guy was shot afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and you think there's only you think there's only like level three above us, right? There's an invisible level before cloaked. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I've been up there before. Well, Andrew, I suppose we have a lot to discuss, but I, I would rather announce our topic first and then maybe discuss some of the inter inter uh, episodic. Uh, issues before if we, if we, before we dive but into if, our but if we if we announce our topic we have to we have to stick to it oh well I suppose that's true I just meant like like uh, business well not business but just uh, what, have we, what have we been up to which is a lot um, a thesis statement or if yeah, you will. so so the, the the topic really has to do with narrativity which is a cockamamie word that shouldn't exist so maybe story is better or or the meaning of narrative or, or this kind of thing I like the word narrativity. Okay, so we can call it narrativity. But didn't we have an episode called narrativity? Or no? We, had, we, cer- we certainly talked about it, narrative. We as did a, talk about narrative, but I don't think we called it narrativity. Oh, the point is, uh, I think that a lot of the problems that we're experiencing in our culture relate to this loss of story. Mm-hmm. And what brought this to mind for me was reading the biography of John Adams mm-hmm. by David McCullough, which I would highly recommend if you want a book about the Revolutionary War period. Yeah, I haven't ever read that. Um, you don't have to read it. It's not like required. Just no, but I want to. It's, it's interesting. I'm so interested in it. Yeah. What's fascinating about it from my perspective is that the correspondence uh, between John and Abigail Adams, uh, which mm. is archived in a library somewhere, uh, was the main source that David McCullough used to write his and did his and book. didn't they make a, a, a mini series based on the same did thing I with Paul Paul Giamatti? Yeah, I, haven't, I haven't watched yeah. it. But the point is, uh, David McCullough says at the end when he's discussing his sources, he says, you know, really this was the only correspondence from the principal founders of the United States that that has this kind of like narrative quality to it, right? That there are letters from the other founders like Jefferson and Washington and whatever, but um, the correspondence is not as comprehensive. Mm-hmm. There aren't as many letters that have been preserved. And 
there's not enough um, material that kind of gives the kind of like day-to-day picture of what's going on. So the other, the other founders are writing like Paul's letters, and this is more like the gospel. Sure. But, or acts. Okay, but, but, I mean, there, it's not to say that the other founders didn't, didn't write a lot of those letters, but maybe just more of them are lost to history or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think for me what was fascinating about it was uh, the way that John Adams, and I would imagine a lot of the other people of his time, thought about their own lives, right? Yeah. And that as, so like every night he would sit down and write like three or four letters, you know, sometimes to his wife, sometimes to his children, sometimes to a friend. And not all of them would be very long. A lot of them would be quite short. But he, every day he's like writing the story of what happened. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Um, and there are a lot of different ways that this was done, not just in his era, but really uh, throughout the whole 19th century, I would say up until the invention of like radio and the television, right? That lots of people did things like keep a journal or write letters and lengthy letters, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, but people thought of these things as important and of archival quality, right? So, so like if, as a scholar, right, if I'm going to go do research on a previous scholar's work, mm-hmm. oftentimes his work will be archived in a library somewhere, you know, the papers of right. such and such famous scholar, right? Um, That's what keeps me from writing letters and writing in my journal. <laughs> it's well, it, I'm afraid they're going to archive it. Well, and beyond that, impor- pe- important people or people who thought they were important would, um, uh, save copies of all of their letters, the ones that they sent and the ones that they received. Kind of like email, right? Which is now saved on a server somewhere and the NSA has access to it even if you don't. Um, <laughs> but for me, what's so fascinating just about, about the process of putting life into words like that on a piece of paper is that you're acknowledging uh, in a very serious way the importance of your own story. Yes. Yeah. The value and the meaning of your own story uh, over against a kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe a nihilism, right? Because there, there is a kind of sense in our overly technologized, overly scientific culture that my story is meaningless. What is, what is meaningful is the greater story of evolution in the human race and mm-hmm. science, the progress of science and technology. But my own particular part to play is very, very small and very, very unimportant, and it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of humility in that that I think needs to be acknowledged, but there's also a, a nihilism in it. There is kind of like a, a dark kind of like a, 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 a how to say it, a, a, a having given oneself up to an insignificance. Right. Like I'm just a cog in a machine. Right. I, I uh, live and work in this cubicle and I have my house in the suburbs and I, you know, have my car payments and house payments and, and my 401k and whatever. And then I die, but I'm just one cog in the machine. And mm. the only people that are considered like validated or, mm. or whatever are those who are able, who have the power and the mm. influence to like make their own story. So these would be people who like own companies, right? Right. Or who are very wealthy or people who are very famous. The story writers. The only people, for example, that are allowed to produce art, right? Are the mm. highly elite. So whether that be, you know, you went through art school and you became a famous artist by, you know, working in New York city or whether that be, you know, you're one of the very few people who make it in Hollywood or Nashville, right? Everyone else, like their art, their, their music that they produce or the art that they produce is considered eh, not important, not part of the cultural conversation. But isn't that, I'll push back. Isn't that being deconstructed now with the new digital media and the ubiquity of like blogs and the ubiquity of just, you know, like, like I'm, I'm, 
I, I look at Behance sometimes where people that make different design things can share them. There's, I'm part of a Catholic creatives thing on Facebook where we share things that we've made. And, and it's, I mean, people, anyone can make anything and anyone can show it to the world. Okay. Yes, it is being deconstructed, but still it's like on a minimal scale. Okay. And, and let me just give you a couple examples, right? Like uh, Etsy is a great example, right? Where people can make these little crafts and then sell them, right? And they can be unique and whatever. But when you like dig a, like one layer deeper, you realize that most of the people on Etsy are like ordering their supplies from Amazon to make these things mm. and then sell them on you know what I mean? It's just like... Yeah, but there's some really great stuff I'm on not, Etsy too. Though. Right, I'm not saying that that's, there's anything wrong with that. And there is original art and original craft there. But it's like there, there's a kind of weird interplay between the mass culture and this like new internet-based microculture that's happening. Right. I mean, another great example is the, the breweries, right? We have 200 and whatever breweries in Colorado. Mm-hmm. There's something like two or 300 in Michigan. You know, lots and lots of breweries. And you go into every one and they have like the exact same IPA on tap. Right, and, you're, and it has a different name, but it tastes exactly the same. Because they're all they're all looking at the same resources and stuff, and yeah, well, and they're ordering the same ingredients from these large corporations that right. produce barley and, and 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 yeast and all of this. It's not to say that there's anything like wrong about that. I think it's going in the right direction, but mm. but there's a way in which, like, if you wrote a poem, like, who's going to care about that? I mean, I'm famous, Mark. I know. Do you know what I'm saying? I just feel like there's there's a there's a, there, the cultural conversation is limited, and, and this right. is why, why I think like the whole internet like microculture thing that you're talking about is important, but it only is living out a kind of new narrativity when it is not participating in the mass culture conversation. I see what you're saying. I guess. But right. what, what I would push a, back a lot with, of the blogosphere is out there talking about current events and about movies that just came out and about all sorts of stuff like that, which is all mass culture. But there, but there, was, there was there was a there's a um, there was a salon article. I've been meaning to look it up and read it. I haven't read it yet, but someone uh, some I was talking about this kind of thing with someone with a mega McDonald from I Believe in Love dot com, and they have a that's a really cool project of narrativity. I want to talk to you about. Um, but they I mentioned something about mommy blogs, and she said, you know. Um, she said, did you read the Salon article about Mormon mommy blogs? And I'm like, no. And it turns out that in the Mormon culture, capturing your life and recording your life and your narrative is like really heavily encouraged and it's kind of part of their spirituality. And so when the new digital media came along, all their elders and people starting their, their current prophet or whatever started like in encouraging them to take this digital and share it with the world. And it spawned this thing that is called the Mormon mommy blog. And they don't really talk about theology or anything. It's just, they're just, they mention their faith and, you know, a little bit now and again, but let's talk about, you know, the funny thing the kid did this morning and, and, and so there's the salon article was about this, this, this woman was like saying she was at a party and she's like this high powered, like feminist, like killing it, has the job, has the power, has the everything. She's smashing through the glass ceiling, everything that she thought she wanted. And she didn't want any of this. And two or three glasses of Chardonnay in, she admits to one of her friends that she's like kind of addicted to reading these Mormon mommy blogs. Huh. And every woman at the party was like, Oh, you too. Huh. You too. Oh my, me too. Like they all start, what's your favorite one? Oh, I follow her. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they all like, come home from this job where they're like running a magazine or something and read about this woman in rural Utah 
arranging flowers and making like fresh steel cut oatmeal for her kid. So like these people have recorded their lives, put it out in the blogosphere and it found an audience in the unlikeliest of places. So I think, I I think that's a significant move in deconstruction and the ubiquitization of the possibility of sharing one's narrative. Yeah. No, I think that's great. And that's like a fantastic, That might be the most pedantic sentence I've ever used. I think that's a fantastic movement in the right direction. Yeah. I just think that there are, I think most people are not doing that. Right. Most of us are not keeping journals. Most of us are not writing meaningful letters. We might hammer out a hundred emails a day, but like right. none of them actually have any personal meaning for us. Most of us are not uh, thoughtfully recording the narrative of our lives. Now, on the flip side, we do tell stories and, and that kind of thing, but uh, I think that there's a limit to what conversation can accomplish uh, and, that, and that there's a, a deeper level of narrative that we need to access in order to kind of recover perhaps that kind of like sense of identity and self that somebody like John Adams would have had. You know, what's weird is that I was thinking about this not too long ago when you and I mentioned this the first time around when we were talking about this, I, um, I have accidentally done this in a really different form because I have this radio show. Sure. Sure. And I'm so relational to what we do on the, on my network. We're so relational. We're so sharing our lives that I realize that because I don't have time to read a bunch of articles and be topical all the time and have, I, I sometimes I spend um, at least the first segment of every one of my personal shows. I'm talking about what I did this weekend. Yeah. So I, I got to thinking about that. I'm like, you know what, if we can make sure that these files are all archived somewhere, it's like your captain's log. Like I will have a captain's log. I will have, I'm going to do that next time I record my captain's log star date 2017, <laughs> 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 January 17th. <laughs> I mean, but it's, I, I, I haven't done this yet, but I know there's going to be a time when I'm going to, Oh yeah, I went to that wedding in Gallup. How did I feel about that? And I'll be able to go back through the archive, search it, find that show. Or scarier yet, the NSA will search through those archives. Right. I mean, it. I'm an open book at this point. You know, and I thought about this not too long ago because I got, um, I bought Clear and TSA PreCheck because I'm traveling so much. And I had to get fingerprinted and background check and all that. And I was just like, at first, my libertarian kind of like conspiracy theory side was kind of like, Oh man, do you really want to like get that kind of that many databases and all that? I'm like, dude, I'm already in there. I mean, my emails, my phone, my phone records, and I have a show with permanent digital archives someplace where I tell them everything I've done every day. Yeah. I'm a no, I'm no way to be off the grid. I am a known quantity. I am. My life is an open book in a sense. The only way is to not have a birth certificate. Right. Did you hear the story about the girl without the birth certificate? No. Oh my gosh. I'll have to tell you about that sometime. This might has to be, this might have to be another conversation on the show. Yeah. It's just wild. Um, so what, so what is the purpose of, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate here. Why in the world with an average human being that's living just in an average human life with an average family and an average job want to take the time to record what the hell happened on a Tuesday afternoon? Yeah. I think the answer is that the only way that we have to make meaning out of our lives is through story and narrative. And that if we don't, at least to some extent, try to keep a record of our story, then we'll lose, we'll lose our own story. And with that, we'll lose our sense of self and identity. 
You know, it's funny because I, I mean, I agree with you and I do this to a certain extent, even I journal and for me in my life, because of like this weird kind of, um, over obsession with God's will and obsession with the narrative and what I should have done and where it went wrong. And, Oh, if only I had, you know, such and such that keeps me from, I think there's a second kind of meaning, which is the uncaptured meaning of the experience of, of the current moment. And that narrative, that thinking through that narrative way in my weird personality keeps me from being in the moment. It puts me in the past and into the future. Cause when I look, cause you're like an archivist at all times. Yeah. I'm rather like, than actually experiencing there was a, uh, I doing. talked about this yeah. on my show. There's a, there, I went and saw this, um, I went and saw this singer songwriter downtown called David um, Ramirez. And he had this great line in one of his songs where he said, um, you know, I don't play to people anymore. I play to their phones. It's hard to have a holy moment when you try to take it home. Yeah. And I mean, that is, that's the story of our modern culture. You can't enjoy your food because you're taking a picture, you're taking six selfies of like, look how much I'm enjoying my food. Yeah, but okay, so, no, so here's, here's the difference though. I think that visually recording through videos and photographs mm-hmm. is uh, different in a fundamental way from recording in words. Yeah. Okay. And I think when you record in words, whether spoken words or in written words, you're engaged in an act of storytelling. Whereas when you're taking a photograph, photograph, you're engaged in an act of journalism. And I think there's a, there's a, there's a real difference in those two things. So, um, and one's happening afterwards. One's interrupted in the moment. One's reflecting back on the moment. Yep. I think yep. that's the key. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't take pictures. I mean, we, we need to. It's important. I mean, I participated in a baptism. Right? I was the godfather, mm-hmm. and I'm sitting there snapping photos the whole time with my, my smartphone. You know, and it's interrupting, but it's also important to record. Um, but, but I think the kind of meaning-making that I'm talking about uh, only happens when we do it with words. And I think in, in, I mean, one of the objections you could raise to this is like, well, what about people that can't read and write? But in non-literary cultures, people have a deep practice of telling stories and of listening to stories, some of which are, you know, mythological and legendary, and some of which are very personal. Right. And I think that a lot of the issues that we confront in our culture, whether they be psychological or political or philosophical or whatever, I think a lot of the problems that we're confronting involve a kind of loss of narrative. I think it's, yeah, I think that, I think that what's been, how to say it, one of the things that has been the most powerful, when you see, you see both sides of the political realm trying to use this now, they remind us what we were about, you know, Trump's done so much of that with, remember when we used to manufacture, Remember when we used to build things, you know, people like Cadillac have used that in their modern commercials about, you know, kind of hearkening back to Detroit and back when grandpa punched a clock and made something that endured. I like the imported from Detroit commercials from Chrysler. Yeah. I like those. And then, I mean, maybe because I'm from Michigan. And then last night we, I listened to um, Obama's final speech and he was just like, going through the narrative of the of history and talking about and then drawing conclusions about where to go forward. He was kind of reminding us of our story. Now I disagree with his conclusions, yeah. but that's a, well, this is what politics is about, right? Politics is about writing stories and rewriting stories and trying to, uh, trying to um, 
capture and capitalize on the meaning of the story and so on. Creating but, new meta narratives and stuff. But like it, this, I think yeah. from, from my perspective though, like what's going on there at the like Trump Obama level is like the only culturally valid meaning making that is allowed in this country, right? The people that are allowed to right. make stories are the people that are powerful and rich, the politicians, the, the wealthy people, the, mm-hmm. the movie stars and the musicians, but everybody else is, is meant to live this kind of mechanized, relatively meaningless feeling life uh, while uh, sort of like vicariously enjoying the storytelling of Hollywood or Nashville. Mm-hmm. That to me is the crime. Right? It used to be when people got together, there was no radio, there was no television. So what had to happen? If anyone was going to experience any level of entertainment, it mm. was a participatory experience. Either you had somebody there who was like a good piano player and everyone could sing along, right? right. or you had somebody there who was a good storyteller, or you had somebody there who could juggle or whatever. Right? If, you th- if you think of entertainment in the, in the era before the radio, it was the piano. Everybody had a piano in their house. Everybody had a piano in the bar. Absolutely, yeah. Right? It was just everywhere. That's why, that's why there are so many old pianos kicking around because there wasn't anything else to entertain you with. Um, and so like the way that a new like, piece of culture got around was when the sheet music for that piano piece like, made its way around the country. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm not saying like, obviously we can't go back to that. Like technology's moved beyond. Like I, I don't want to just be like a hey, let's just go back to the way things used to be. Wasn't it so great? I'm sure there were lots of other problems that have been solved by all of our wonderful modern technology. Of course, yeah. The point that I want to get at is this whole thing of like, we don't even do that anymore. You know what I mean? Like, we don't get together around a piano in a bar and sing songs. You know, and it's, there's something about, how to say it, it's, it's not something that's not contrary to humility, that is a taking oneself and one's life seriously enough to sit down and write a narrative about an event or what happened, you know, or to tell, or even to take the time to tell a story. And look, I think you have some like good examples of like how to do it the right way from like early 20th century Ireland. Yeah. Right. So you like listen to some of the songs coming out of early 20th century Ireland, obviously very, very sad songs, like really tragic circumstances for many reasons. But like this, this culture was like a culture of real people who were processing what was happening to them through their music and their storytelling. Mm -hmm. We aren't doing that. You know, and, 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 and even popular music used to do that. When you look at like, um, even up through the sixties. Sure. Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan and like, you know, the times they are changing. And Peter Paul and Mary. Peter Paul. Yeah, all the folk and all, the, all those. Woody Guthrie. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 narrative songs. N- yeah. Narrative songs. They're yeah. singing the, 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 the ballad of so-and-so, the, yeah. the, the, the story of the blah, blah, blah. You know, that used to be a thing. Right. And now it's, it's become something. You still hear that occasionally, but that's way rarer now. Yeah. So another another maybe way of thinking about this that I've been, has sort of been percolating in my mind is, has to do with uh, re- relationships with other people throughout time, right? Um, mm-hmm. There's, uh, sorry, there are multiple points of connection that I'm trying to make here, but if, just think about, for example, somebody that you've known for 20 years, yeah, right? And, and maybe it's been on and off, or maybe you haven't seen them in five or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's like there's... There's a, there's, a, there's a narrative quality to the relationship because it, it persists throughout time. 
Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And so like the more mobile we get as a culture, the more we move around the country, the mm-hmm. more we meet new people and forget about the old ones, the less narrative our lives feel because the people around us don't know our story. Right. I mean, when I get a new friend, a- unless we tell them the entire story, right. And when I get a new friend, I have to like, I just now got to be friends with father James up in Flint and we were like BFFs overnight, but we don't know each other's stories. Yeah. So every time he and I get together and have a drink or hang out, when we're not plotting the takeover of the world for the Catholic Church or whatever, we're we're talking about about we're telling each other our narrative. I'm telling him the story of how I ended up in California. So or, you know, it's like okay. So to, so to kind of circle back to the point about having relationships through through time with people, though, your narrative feels much more powerful when other people there are reaffirming your narrative and like adding parts that you forgot. Right. Do you know what I mean? So like, I mean, this goes back to like oral cultures and like how oral tradition works and this kind of thing. But there's, there's this great article by a a biblical scholar. I was going to say, this is the argument for the accuracy of the biblical documents. I can't remember what his name is. Kenneth something, uh, who researched among the Bedouins and their oral culture. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. But the basic idea was that, you know, you're like sit around and the campfire, you know, with your camels and you're telling these traditional stories. And like, if you mess up, people will be like, Oh no, 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 that's not what happened. This is what happened. Right. Right. And so there's this kind of like corrective to your oral story. Right. And, that experience, I think, is really, really powerful on a personal basis, right? Where you're retelling a story from your own past, and there are other people at the table who were there, and, and they're saying, well, that's not exactly how I remember it. I remember this, right? But if, but if you are removed from all those people, right, and nobody that you know mm-hmm. was there, then you don't have that kind of communal experience of storytelling and story building. So I had this idea one time for a website or an app or something that you could basically start your own version of like your own Wikipedia page. And then you could invite all the people through Facebook or whatever, in all of your life. And I guess you could just do this with any kind of a blog or yeah. something. Invite everyone that you know to, tell to, 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 you? To, 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 to fill in and work on the document yeah, and tell all the stories about, you know, what happened because there's times when I'm like, where was I when I was living in that house in Cape Girardeau? Where was I working at? And yeah. then someone else come in and go, Yes, yeah, so I was working with Andrew. We were delivering pizza at Emo's and he had right. this old van. And it's like, Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I have such a bad memory. And Facebook kind of does that, right? Especially if you, right. if you post an old photo on Facebook and you tag people in it. Yeah. Then sometimes people will recall memories about what happened then. Uh, but it does have a kind of laboratory quality to it or something. No, it, yeah, it's not as. I love, there's nothing I love better than when you get a bunch of people together that haven't seen each other in a while and they start telling the old stories. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and it's like, you know, remember that time that we were, you know, no, no, that wasn't that we were, that was the time we went camping. Oh, that's right. And that old guy had the truck and you're, yeah. And we, and then, and someone new is there. Right. And they play the role of the listener. Right. And right. they're trying to, and they're asking questions and you're correcting each other. And just that, that is, it's, that is a deeply human thing. So I, I guess perhaps where this is headed is like, okay, so what's the prescription for our cultural moments? And I, I think it has something to do with, uh, well, something we've talked about a lot on the podcast is like artificially recreating something that's actually natural to being human. Okay, and, and, and what I mean by that is that is definitely one of the meta narratives of our totally, podcast, right? Because it's so important, yeah. especially in a place like Denver. You know, there where were, nobody I know in Denver was born here. 
unless they're like under the age of 20 or something. Oh, I know some people, but very few. I know natives, but not, but yeah, my, my children were born here. But anyway, that that, besides the point, the, uh, the, 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 the fact is a lot of people. Okay. So like, if you go to small town, America, right. Where everybody knows everybody kind of thing. Right. They still know how to do this, right. They still know how to tell stories and keep up on the local gossip, Mm -hmm. you know, and and all that kind of thing. Right. Um, I just, I just had an experience of this. I was out, I flew into Kansas city and went over to my aunt and uncle's house in Topeka, Kansas to uh, buy a car. Cause my car is about to die. And, and I spent a few days there and every night I would just sit around, hang out with my aunt. And it was kind of a, it was kind of a negative thing. She was telling me kind of the history of all the grudges and the weirdness in our family yeah. and stuff. But there was all these things. She was telling me stories about like a wedding I was at and someone who said something or did something that made someone cry. And then one of the characters in the story is little toddler, Andy, me like, and she was telling me how I was wiping someone's tears off and going, I get them. I get them. I mean, she was telling me stories about me. Yeah. She was telling me my stories that I had never heard before. Right. And you used to always do this in this one time. And she was in, and and some of them, it was kind of trying because I was finding out the story behind tensions in the family that I had never been privy to and understanding kind of some of the history of our own. And every family has these tragedies and in history and all this stuff. But it was interesting hearing stories that I kind of maybe semi remembered or I was too young to remember, but I was a character in the story. I think there's something, um, there's something profoundly rooting and grounding about that. Yes. Okay. So, uh, so your story brings to mind something that made me start thinking about this in the first place, which was, I was watching a a YouTube video of Alistair McIntyre. Oh, I love Alistair McIntyre. Very interesting lecture, you know, and that, but it was really during the Q and a period that things got real fascinating. Uh, and he responded to a question by saying something like, well, I think part of the problem is that in the United States, people have lost the art of family storytelling mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that the way in which meaning and culture and family values and whatever else are conveyed is through a, a process of telling stories and that we've lost like the sort of know-how to like do that in the right way and, and that we're not having those storytelling conversations as much anymore. And I was, and I was like, wow, that's really true, you know? And, and, and really, if you think about, say, for example, your great-grandparents who you may have never met, right? right? What do you know about them? Well, all you know about them are, are from the stories that your grandparents and your parents told you. Right. Or maybe you have like their wedding record or something like this, but you hardly have any documents probably. Um, and it's mostly based on a kind of family oral tradition. Right. It's, it's, and it's, it's interesting too, because I think that the frequent re-engagement of one's story with people who experience those things in community, especially when we're so mobile, I think it's biologically important. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is I had an experience. I was living out in California. I had not been back to Deloge, Missouri, this little 4,000 people town that I grew up in or Bon Terre, any of those old towns near it in a long time. And I ended up um, on the phone talking to my friend, Linda Black, that I'd known since seventh grade. We hadn't spoken in 15 years, right? And she said some phrases like, um, she said, um, Cedar Falls Road, which was a road that went out of the edge of my town and out to this old road that I used to drive all the time. 
And I'm like, oh yeah. And I started remembering the falls there and oh yeah. And that connected to Hillsborough road. And oh yeah. I used to drive that out to Farmington and come back to 67 and oh yeah. And so she was telling me names and places and we just, just in passing. Right. But then what happened was over the course of the next couple of weeks, I started having all these really random reemergences of, of memories that were not related to any of those things. Sure, right? Because it ignited those synapses. Right, right, right. Yeah. So those I went, parts of your that's brain how I up. found out about how memory works biologically is I had such a weird experience with this that I dove into like a white paper and some stuff, started researching on the internet, figuring out how memory works and how these synapses and what's connected and how there's... Yeah. So there's something about... The re-engagement of stories from different times that of you were the, of your life that in some way keeps the whole fresh, right, and right. keeps it homogeneous. It keeps the the holistic connection to the larger narrative, right. So, so maybe circling back to the problems that I was mentioning earlier, like I think a, a lot of the problems related to things like depression and suicide and mental illness mm-hmm. have to do with a kind of loss of reality, right, mm-hmm. which. And the, how do we encounter reality and how do we think about reality? Well, through story or through right. narrative. So they have to do with a kind of loss of narrative. Now, I'm not saying that if everybody keeps a journal and writes narrative letters that they'll never have mental illness. But I do think it's a kind of hedge against kind of mental illness. <laughs> Maybe I should. I, see, that's the funny thing is I journal. I just, I, it's funny that you were bringing this up, this whole thing, because I, uh, I just went through something recently where I'm, just, I'm working on some projects that are kind of like, a full circle back to stuff I was working on in the nineties. Right. So I had a weekend and I did, it wasn't traveling and I was just praying a lot and thinking kind of in a reflection mode and just kind of naturally I gravitated and I went and I pulled my journals from like 93 to 97. Yeah. From being in ministry, leaving ministry, my back surgery, college, and then the, the discontent with college and then going to Thomas Quine's college in my first year in California, I pulled those journals and I started reading and I naturally started, I even went to coffee houses that I would have hung out in, like in that like second wave coffee houses and drank dark roast coffee and wore a flannel. And I, I kind of put myself back in that narrative to feel those things again. And I spent an entire weekend with myself wow, reading what was going on in my life and who I was and how I communicated and the stories that I would tell and trying to remember that I would be making these vague references to occurrences. And I try to remember who came over that I was talking about. Yeah. And so, I mean, and it was like, really, it was really connecting to me. It was a where, really, really, really deeply um, connecting to me, to myself and my own narrative. You know, this is where I think the practice of writing an autobiography is actually really helpful and yeah. meaningful for a person. I don't think that most autobiographies are worth reading. Right. Okay. Because they're not really written for others unless you're like the president or something, you know? And, and, and I mean, oftentimes I think of writing an autobiography as a kind of um, prideful act, right? Cause it's like, you know, you think you're so important that you're going to like write a whole book about yourself. But if you think about writing an autobiography as I'm just writing this for me, right? So that I can understand myself and my own story and make sense of where I've come from and where I'm going and all of that, then I think it makes a lot of sense. Well, I think that there's well two things about that. I think that I couldn't really see myself doing autobiography, but I've thought about writing memoir and 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 that kind of a thing because yeah. I think that we all have experiences that are universal and applicable sure. to and, and revelatory in some way to other people, but. You know, it's funny, not too long ago, 
I saw a Facebook post advertising a book that you could buy, kind of like a self-published book on Amazon from a friend of mine that teaches at a Catholic college. And what it was was that he had went to his dad who was getting old and he was like, Hey, your story, I mean, it's kind of starting to get kind of hazy and lost. And, and could you tell us the story of you and mom and how you met and how you converted and why your that happened? And, and so he kind of wrote his own little version of a severe mercy, kind of huh. the, the love story slash conversion experience yeah. of this young couple. Cause it had all kind of happened. It was one narrative of them coming together and, changing their mind and coming into the church and all this. And they wrote it all down. And when he read it, it was so beautiful. They decided to publish it and he put it out because it would be good for other people to read. But it started as a son asking dad or grandpa, like, Hey, would you, would you write that down before we lose it? Yeah. And I think there's something instinctual about that. This is really interesting because it goes back to my, my mom actually back in the late eighties. Yeah. Uh, got really interested in uh, like oral tradition and the idea of like recording people's life stories. Yeah. So she actually went around with a tape recorder and, and physical tapes and would like sit down and just have, like just ask people, like tell me your story and just like record hours and hours of them talking about like their childhood. Your mom did this. My mom did this. Yeah. Like, are these people in your life? So one of them is my grandfather. I haven't listened to the tapes. I I hope that they're still okay. I should listen to those tapes or get them digitally captured. Yeah. Uh, and I can't remember how many people she did it with. She was hoping to like turn this into like a product to sell with like an instruction manual of like how to record a life story, you know? Wow. Um, But it's just kind of fascinating that there's like this desire like deep within us to, to kind of capture all of that. Um, But I think that that desire is not silly, but it's very meaningful. And it, and and I think for all the reasons that we've discussed, you know, and I, and I feel like there's a certain something that we haven't talked much about is there's a certain sadness whenever you come to the realization that a story has been lost. Yeah. You know, like I, like on, like on my, my mom's side of the family, the way that the Maget family ended up in America has to do with some ancestor of ours and, um, a fight in a bar and a cop getting killed and him running off and hiding on a ship. And there's just all this crazy, I mean, it would make, it would make a movie. Yeah. And it's funny. It involves coffee wine, all these things that have to do with my life. And I've heard the outlines of the story kind of, yeah. but as far as who the guys, what the guy's name was, what city was he in in France? Right. What was the name of the ship he came over on? This is why that's all been lost. This now. is why writing letters is really important. Everyone who knows those things yeah. has pretty much died at this point. I right. think this is why writing narrative letters is important. Yeah. Okay. Not just letters that convey bits of information or dates and times, but like in like letters that tell stories. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's really powerful. And you know, an email, I mean, I suppose you can do it in email. I just feel like email is so impersonal and, right. and, and kind of mechanized. It's weird though. Some of these modern communication technologies, we've gotten so used to them. I recently had the strange experience a couple months ago of having a very long, very deeply personal engagement with a friend of mine, a big conversation via text, which was not something you normally do. But what I noticed is we just couldn't talk any other way because of the constraints of what was going on at the moment, right? And one of us was someplace where we were just killing time and the alley had was a phone. And 
I noticed that I start immediately started using Siri because the the type of thing I was saying. First of all, it was too long. It would take too long to type uh, with your thumbs. Yeah, you get my thumb thumbs. Arthritis. But I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't speak that. I couldn't say that. I couldn't do that as well. the The, the mode of engagement turned me towards the oral. Yeah. To tell the story, so I to think, speak. I think most modes of engagement tur- turn you toward the oral. <laughs> I am, um, I am fairly oral. You're, you're an oral communicator. I am definitely an oral communicator, um, but I'm, I'm I'm a visual communicator too. I have my hands and what I, body language, but yeah. um, well, no, I definitely I I'm a. They'll get you some signal flags. So you can you know, and I and I am communication. exactly yeah. No, but I definitely have figured out how to say it. That, one of my strengths and one of the things that I love doing and one of the things that I get feedback that people love like on my show and stuff is stories. I, I'm, I'm a decent storyteller. I, tell, I, tell, I find good stories and I tell them and I love telling those stories. And I think that I love listening to stories. Sure. And I mean, obviously, I think that, I think that we've just kind of, we've just relegated all of this aspect of our human person and all these desires that we have for this narrative and story, just to television, just as something episodic or something that you go and you watch it, then it's over and you remember it. And those are great. I love movies. I love that. I love that kind of narrative, but I think we're, we've missed something else. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I think you're right. Um, well, I I hope that we circle back to this story at some point. (laughs) And, and I hope that all of our listeners will think about their own stories and write them down and maybe even tell a story to their friend about what a wonderful time they had listening to this episode about narrativity. Or maybe we should find a way for our listeners to tell us their stories. Now you're talking. How could we, uh, do we have a, do we have an email for this? We thing have a here? Facebook page. Go to our Facebook page over the counter. Yeah. Um, and write a story. There you go. On our Facebook page. We're gonna put the, We're gonna post this episode Does on the Facebook. Does it have Facebook. to be a true story? I, I think it should be. Yeah. Okay. True yeah. So so we're gonna put it. We're gonna put this episode on the Facebook page that we're back with a vengeance. Over the counter is back in the house, and we want you to in the comments section tell us a story. That sounds great. All right. All right, Andrew. Well, until next time, you're listening to Over the Counter. I'm Mark Geeschek, and I'm Andrew Rayleigh.